Welcome to the Inside OSU podcast. I'm Burns Hargis. Today we bring you the real-life story of someone who went from being wanted by the FBI to working at the FBI Academy. Our guest is Frank Abagnale. If the name doesn't ring a bell right away, perhaps the 2002 movie based on Abagnale's life will. Leonardo DiCaprio played Abagnale in Catch Me If You Can, directed by Steven Spielberg. It's a gripping story that includes Abagnale's impersonating an airline pilot, a doctor, and an attorney. It includes time spent in a French prison, but it also includes taking his knowledge of fraud and using it to help protect other people. Here's my interview with Frank Abagnale. Uh, I thought Steven Spielberg did a wonderful job of telling the story. He stayed very close to the story. I ran away from home at 16 when my parents got a divorce, ended up on the streets of New York uh, at 16. Uh, back then, a lot of people in the 60s got into Haight-Ashbury, the hippie scene, the drug scene. Uh, I started uh, realizing that at 16, I had to make people believe I was a lot older or they wouldn't uh, deal with me. So yeah, I, I read you were having trouble getting right. jobs. So I, yeah, so they didn't I, pay you much. So I altered my driver's license, which back then was just an IBM card, didn't have a photo on it, and I changed one digit on it to my year of birth. So that made me 26 years old. And I had started writing checks, and of course, when the money ran out, I kept writing the checks, and the uh, police started looking for me as a runaway and for the bad checks, and then I ended up impersonating an airline pilot for a couple of years. I was a doctor in a Georgia hospital for a while. I passed the state bar exams in Louisiana, practiced law there for a year. And I was eventually arrested by the French police when I was 21 in southern France, uh, convicted in French court of law and sent to French prison. I was later extradited to Sweden. I served time in the Swedish prisons and later brought back to the United States where a U.S. federal judge gave, uh, sentenced me to 12 years in federal prison. I served four of the 12 years at a federal prison in Virginia. And then when I was 26, the government offered to take me out of prison on the condition I go to work with an agency for the government for the remainder of my sentence or until my parole had been satisfied. Well, what made them think, well, first of all, I, I, I've been curious, what book of checks did you have to write all those hot checks on? Oh, I would just go open accounts. You know, I did a lot of things that um, always were, I never thought premeditated just as an opportunity. I'd gone into a, a bank and opened a checking account and gave them a phony identification and a $100 deposit. And I knew that in two weeks they'd mail me 200 printed checks with that name and that information, and I'd cash those checks. But uh, I got, being young, I was very inquisitive, so I said to the young lady, I noticed you didn't give me any deposit slips. She said, no, no, they come from the bank check printer, they'll be in the back of your checkbook, you'll get them in about 10 days. Well, what if I want to make a deposit tomorrow? Well, you'll have to go over to the table in the lobby, help yourself to a blank deposit slip, write your account number in, Use those till you get your printed ones. So I walked over and I took a big stack of them off the shelf. I went back, I kept looking at them and thinking about it. So the next day I went down and bought a Burroughs magnetic encoder, which looked like a big adding machine. And I magnetically encoded my account number the bank had assigned to me the day before. Then I went back to the bank, put them on the shelf in the lobby and everyone who came in put their money in my account. <laughs> so I did a lot of different things when it came to the check. That's 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 incredible, and the the story of your uh, the story of your airline pilot uh, tenure is, is fascinating. Same thing, you know. If I always say that being an adolescent, I had no fear of being caught, I had no fear of consequences. Had it been older, 21, 25, I probably would have rationalized everything I did and said it'll never work. But it was very difficult to go in a bank where you didn't have a bank account to cash a check. So the teller would send you to a bank officer. 
you'd give him a story and sometimes he or she would okay the check, but they were small amounts. And then one day I was walking down the street in Manhattan, I saw an airline crew come out of a hotel and I thought to myself, wow, if I could get one of these pilot uniforms, then I'd go in the bank as a pilot over on a layover and I bet they'd cash my check in a minute. And this is, of course, back before ATMs and even credit cards. Uh, and sure enough, I was able to finagle the, the uniform. I got the uniform. It was night and day. It was some uniform store, wasn't it? Yeah, what I, I did is I basically called Pan Am and said that I was a Pan Am pilot and that I was on the layover and I had sent my uniform out through the hotel to have it clean. And now the cleaner in the hotel couldn't find it. And I had a flight in a few hours, so they sent me down to the well-built uniform company, which was their vendor. Uh, they fitted me out in the uniform, and next thing I had the uniform. And it was night and day when I went in the bank. They never questioned anything. They saw only the uniform, and I realized that worked very quickly. So did you ever fly an airplane? No, and there was a great scene in the movie at a TWA, which actually happened at the TWA terminal at JFK, where I had gone up to the counter in the uniform to buy a ticket. And so the agent said to me, are you buying or are you riding? I said, I don't understand. Are you purchasing a ticket or are you riding the jump seat? I said, well, no, I'll ride the jump seat. And then I realized that I could fly all over the world for free by riding up in the cockpit of the jump seat. But you never flew But I never Pan had Am. to fly the plane. I never flew Pan Am because I was afraid people would question who I knew and who I didn't know and all those kind of things. And then you, uh, you know, there's a, a series on Amazon Prime called Suits. Uh, where a uh, young man is impersonating a lawyer in a okay. New York firm. Have you seen it? I haven't seen it, but it's amazing today how many people have uh, taken the bar and haven't gone to law school. We get those cases all the time. They find out about it later. So I wasn't the only person. There's still people, unfortunately, doing those things. Yeah. And then do you, you also... Uh, what, you had another career there for a while. As the doctor in the yeah, hospital yeah, in Georgia. Doctor. Yeah, doctor. You actually... Uh, and again, all these things I kind of fell into. If I had said to myself, I'm going to Georgia and I'm going to apply to be a doctor, uh, I actually moved into an apartment complex, and it was a singles complex. And on the application for the apartment, it asked occupation. And I didn't want to write airline pilot because I knew they were looking for me as the airline pilot. So I just thought to myself, doctor. So I wrote it down. But the apartment manager was very inquisitive. She says, oh, I see you're a doctor. I said, oh, yes. She said, what type of doctor are you? I said, well, I'm a, I'm a medical doctor, but I'm not practicing uh, medicine right now. I came to Atlanta to invest in some real estate. Oh, really? Well, what type of medical doctor? And I figured being a singles complex, pediatrician would be pretty safe. So I moved in, but then I met a real doctor who lived there that was a pediatrician. Oh. And we became friends, and then he introduced me to people at the hospital. And then when they had a position open just temporarily for someone whose parents passed away, they asked me if I would cover the shift in administrative capacity. So being the young kid, I was said, well, let me see if I can get away with it. And, and I did it. So, but again, if I had planned it, it would have never, it would have never worked. So were you, uh, were you doing the same sort of thing in, in Europe when you were arrested? In Europe, I actually had stopped doing all of these things. I lived in a little town called Montpellier, which is a college town in southern France. And I always knew I'd get caught. You know, you know sooner or later, they're going to catch up with you. It was just a matter of time. Uh, and sure enough, an Air France stewardess recognized me from a wanted poster, and she reported to the authorities she saw me there. And the French police arrested me. And immediately, the Swedish police put a warrant for my arrest for forgery in Sweden. But the French first caught me, so they convicted me of forgery in France and sent me to French prison. What uh, was that first. like? 
Uh, the French prisons were very bad. It's a whole different philosophy about you go to prison to be punished. You don't go to prison to lift weights and live in air conditioning. Re rehabilitation. Yeah, so there's no rehabilitation. It's all about punishment. So it was a very severe place. I thought Steven Spielberg did a good job of showing it. He went back and researched during the time I was there what the prisons were like. Um, I read uh, you, you had a blanket yeah, on the, yeah, the floor. Yeah, blanket on the floor, hole in the floor to go to the bathroom, no plumbing, no electricity. It was very dark. Um, it was a, and then you went from that environment to the Swedish prisons, which were the total opposite. It was like going to spend the night at the Holiday Inn. Uh, they were the exact opposite of the French, uh, French prisons. And then, of course, the American prisons somewhere in the middle of those two. Uh, how, did, how did Steven Spielberg find you? He actually, which is very interesting, he, uh, the book was printed in 1980. He wrote, did, he was... Now did you write the book? I or? wrote it with a ghostwriter. Yeah. He, he uh, bought the rights to the book shortly after when he was making Jaws. He loved the book. So when Barbara Walters interviewed him about making Catch Me If You Can, she asked him directly, why did you wait 20 years uh, to make the movie? And he said, because I wanted to see what the real Frank Abagnale did with his life before I immortalized him on film. So he really waited to see how my life turned out before he oh, went out and made a film about that's me. That's great. He loved the redemption side of the story, and that's why he, he wanted to make the movie. As I watched the movie and, and then read, uh, read the story, I mean, you've had books, movies, Broadway plays. I mean, you're, you're well chronicled. Uh, but, but my curious curiosity was, what was it that the FBI saw in you that they thought they could use because really, you just were really good at conning people. Right, and absolutely. So the first five years, I just did undercover work. And what the whole asset that the Bureau saw in me was that they could literally say to me, I need you in the next two weeks to take up this information. You're a lieutenant in the Army. You've been in the Army for this many years. Your expertise is this particular missile. And I need you to go to the base, and I need you to find out this information. They knew that they could put me in any position that I could fake long enough in that position to find out whatever they wanted me to find so out. In so a, in a perverse kind of way, yeah, there was... Doing there the was, same thing. There was but, an admiration for what uh, you for were what they doing. Were to do. Because they, uh, Tom Hanks played the FBI, the FBI agent FBI. that was... Uh, who and I were friends for 30 years as a wonderful man, and uh, he, he was uh, my supervisor who I reported to for the first 10 years till he retired. And then the, after about five years, uh, I was involved in some cases that got a lot of notoriety in the media people started to realize I was involved in that and who I really was. So the Bureau took me you off your that. undercover. Yeah, and uh, when they asked me about staying, or I, I decided to stay, then they started realizing I'd be a great asset to teach at the FBI Academy. So I've, I've been at the Academy 40 years. I've taught two generations of FBI And, and what do you there. teach? What, what uh, everything's changed. You know, when I first went there, it was all about counterfeiting, forgery, embezzlement, financial crimes. Uh, now the last 20 years all about cybercrime. So with everything that's going on and your knowledge of, of the whole cybersecurity uh, abuse area, uh, what, what, what advice would you just give the, our citizens and uh, how to interact with their technology? Okay, a couple of simple things, especially about identity theft. I've written three books on the subject. I ask people always to do only what I do myself. Uh, first of all, I shred everything. So yesterday you got a catalog from Nordstrom's, Frontgate, Macy's, you read it, you didn't want anything, you threw it away. But on the back cover of that catalog is your name and address, a barcode, a source code, and an ID number. That's all I need to become you. If you tell me on social media where you were born and your date of birth, that's all I need to steal your identity, just those two pieces of information. So you don't want to do, do that. 
Uh, I use, uh, a, when I use a shredder, I use a shredder that cannot be put back together. So if you use a straight ribbon shredder, uh, we're able to put those papers back together. If you use a crisscross shredder, uh, we use a software at the lab in Quantico called ePuzzler, allows us to put those back together. So if you use what's called a microcut shredder, which is the same price as the others, but it says on the box, security microcut shredder, that turns paper into a little piece of confetti or rice that we don't have the ability to put back together. So it's a better tool to do the right job. I don't write a lot of checks in this environment. If I were to go in the drugstore tomorrow and write a check, I have to actually hand the clerk the check. On the check is my name and address, my phone number, my bank's name and address, my account number at my bank, my routing number into my account, that's my wiring instructions, my signature on the signature card at the bank, then the clerk has written on the front of the check my Oklahoma driver's license number and my date of birth. We don't get the check back, we live in truncation, so I get an image of the check. The physical check goes to the drugstore company's warehouse for 65 days, and then they eventually destroy it. Anyone who would see the face of that check could draft on my account. They could do account takeover by ordering checks, putting their name on it, my account number. So I'm very careful about who I write the checks to, and I certainly wouldn't be writing those checks for $9 off my wealth management account, private banking account, uh, mutual fund account, where I might have a lot of money at risk. And finally, uh, we now have the ability to freeze your credit. On September 18, 2018, the president signed into law a federal law that allows every citizen in America to freeze their credit for free. They can no longer be charged by credit bureaus to do so, to unfreeze it, refreeze it, freeze it back again. So you can now freeze your credit so that absolutely no one can see it without your permission. And if you're gonna have to unfreeze it, you just do it for whoever you're buying a car or you're applying for a job, they knew a background check, you unfreeze it for them to see it. I would suggest that every American freeze their credit. You're allowed to do that from 16 years up. Uh, and I would think that'd be the wisest thing to How do. How do you do that? You just have to contact each of the three credit bureaus, Equifax, Experian, TransUnion, and freeze your credit. So it's a one-time thing. Little uh, work goes into it, but once you do it, you've frozen your credit. And finally, I don't own a debit card. I've never owned a debit card. Um, a, a long time ago, I asked myself, what is the safest form of payment in the world? And the truth is, it's a credit card. Visa, MasterCard, American Express, Discover Card. Every day of my life, I spend the credit card company's money. I never expose my money. It's only their money. My money sits in a money market account, earns interest. Uh, every day I use my credit card, I pay my bill every month, whether minimum due or the full amount, uh, it goes and bills my credit, so my credit score goes up. I will do everything to protect my number, but if tomorrow someone would put a million dollars on my credit card, by federal law I have no liability. There is zero risk to me. Uh, if I buy something online and it's a fictitious site, I'm covered by the credit card company. If I buy a camera online and it comes to me broken but they refuse to take it back, the credit card company covers me. Um, when you use a debit card, every time you reach for it, you're taking the money directly out of your account. So what I've like noticed, yes. So what I've noticed in all of the breaches over the years, especially retail breaches, Target, Home Depot, that people say, oh, I was in the store but I used my Visa card, so two days later they canceled the card, three days later FedEx delivered me a new card, that was the last I heard about it. Oh, well, no, I used my debit card off my credit union. They took $3,000 out of my checking account. I had to wait like three months to get my money because they said they were investigating what happened. Uh, again, I don't have to worry about that. And what I do with my bank to get cash, I tell the bank I would just like an ATM card. Not an ATM debit card, but strictly just a 
straight ATM card off my bank. That way I can go anywhere in the world and use that card, but I don't need to be concerned about losing my money because, again, the way the federal statute is written concerning credit cards, ATM cards, versus debit cards. So it's just a much safer way. So what unfortunately happens is we have a lot of young people, especially in college, they're very used to using their debit card. It's very convenient. So four years later, they graduate. They get a beautiful job in Tulsa, Oklahoma City. They go down to rent an apartment. They fill out the lease, and the manager says, son, you have no credit. Oh, you don't have a credit file at the credit bureau. I can't lease you the apartment. You'll need to have your parents uh, co-sign the lease for you. So I had three sons. They went off to college. I said, I'm not giving you a debit card. I've actually applied for a credit card in your name. It's your card. Of course, you have no credit, so I guaranteed it which means that every month the bill comes to me. I'm responsible for the bill. So if you spend a lot of time in a bar, I'm going to know it because I pay the <laughs> bill. Uh, I set the limit on the card. Whatever I feel you need to spend every month, that'll be the limit of the card. And third, when I pay the bill every month, it'll go on your credit. So by the time you get out of college, you should be looking at a credit score of about 800. You want to buy a car, buy a house, rent an apartment. You will need me to help you do that. That's very important today because as I remind young people today, Credit is not what credit was 30 years ago. That 30 years ago was, do I get the house, do I get the car? Today, everything is based on your credit report. You apply for a job, your employer checks your credit. You apply for auto insurance, they check your credit, they base the rate on it. You apply for life insurance, they check your credit. You apply for health insurance, they check your credit. Everything is based around your credit. So teaching young people at an early age to start establishing credit in their name and keeping good credit is one of the best things they can do to succeed in life and keep their life without a lot of trouble. What do you see as the, uh, 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 the types of fraud and uh, cybersecurity breaches that uh, we're going to be experiencing in the next few years? Well, I expect, we expect between now and 2021 to have about $6 trillion in losses from cybercrime. We're already at $1.7 trillion. Um, but what's going to get real scary is that we're getting such developed, developed such technology today where, for example, we can shut someone's pacemaker off because it's a Bali device with a chip in it. But we have to be within 35 feet of them to do that. So I have to walk by you on the street and get close to you to do that. Uh, we can pull over a vehicle because the vehicle, typical vehicle, has 240 computer components in it. We can shut the person in the car, lock the doors, lock the window, turn on the airbag. Uh, but again, we're restricted and limited by a distance of usually 35 feet. My question is, in five years, what if that's 50 miles or 500 miles or 2,000 miles away? So I think what's going to happen with cyber up until this point, it's all financial, stealing money, stealing data. Data is money. But I'm afraid that in the next five, 10 years, it's all going to be more about doing harm, whether it be uh, get, breaking into banks and destroying their system, getting into the financial system, the electrical grid, or just assassinating people from a distance away, which will be very difficult to find those. You images. know, this is a, a question that I came out the other day. Somebody told me that if you put your, uh, your phone, you plug your phone into a USB in a rent car, it downloads everything on your phone. I don't know if it downloads, but it could download. So if I was someone who wanted to do that, I could do it. It's just like I tell people when you go to a convention, and the, there's a little set there, someone has a booth, and they're giving you away little uh, USB drives, and it says Dell on it or whatever. You have to remember that that's made in China. So obviously, the Chinese have done something to that. So they can activate that. They can take data that's on there. It's just like every camera you see in a, an airport or a, a government installation or a military installation. If you look, they're all made in China. 
So there is no question that there's something in those cameras that we can't really detect, but that they're not stupid, so they obviously are, are doing that. One thing that just strikes me as a, is just a hotbed, just a gold mine of fraud, is the cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin yeah. and the like. Yeah, I'm not on. I was asked uh, about five years ago, Atlantic Magazine, always on the last page of their monthly magazine, ask a celebrity or someone a question. And so they asked me what I thought about cryptocurrency, and I said I thought it was probably the biggest scam perpetrated uh, on the world. And I still feel that way today. It's not a very safe form of payment. Uh, you can lose a lot of money very quickly. There are hackers who hack into uh, systems. We shut down exchanges all the time that are fraudulent exchanges that people think they're doing business with honest people. So I think in the future there's a pl place for cryptocurrency, but we're not there yet. Just like blockchain, I think blockchain is great. It's the, the future. I think you'll see banks. Well, why don't you give an elementary uh, definition of blockchain for our viewers? Blockchain is just <laughs> a very, very secure way of keeping information that you cannot change. Once it is there, it cannot be altered or changed. So for accounting purposes, uh, banking person uh, records, vital records for a county or a city government, it's great. There are social issues. For example, we would not have a witness protection program because you wouldn't be able to actually change the person's identity due to blockchain. Uh, there's things about people who change their sexual orientation. You wouldn't be able to do that because we'd always know what it is. Uh, so there are social issues that have to be what worked out. What makes it so secure? Uh, it's the way the system is developed and the way the system works. It's, uh, it, and it's very complicated, but if you go on to Google and look up blockchain, they explain to you how it works. But obviously, people feel very secure with that system. There are a few kinks that have to be worked out with it, but I think that is the future. I think a lot of data will end up being done in a blockchain uh, format to keep it secure so it can't be altered or changed by somebody else. So you had three sons, is that? Three sons. Three sons. Uh, did you counsel them on don't lead the life I led? <laughs> yes, and I've been very lucky. My oldest boy is an FBI agent, been in the Bureau 14 years, is a supervisor over our kidnapping team out of uh, Quantico. Uh, my middle son and his wife own a retail chain of stores down in Charleston, and my youngest boy develops video games uh, for a gaming company. One of the games he does is Doom, which mm. is celebrating its 25th anniversary. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, great. Very successful. Yeah. Uh, a lot of students will be watching this. Uh, tell uh, what message do you have for them uh, in, in this evolving I world think, of technology? I think technology. the best advice, uh, first of all, two pieces of advice. I would absolutely say that. If I was a young person today, I would want to get into learning all about cybersecurity because that's the future. And I don't mean writing code. I'm talking about recognizing ransom and malware and getting into the actual security of cybersecurity. Uh, that's where the future is going to be, and that's where companies, corporations, and governments will be looking for people who are, have those kind of backgrounds and knowledge. As a personal piece of advice, um, you know, we always hear that uh, life is short. But the truth is that life is actually pretty long. So, uh, you know, someone from my generation might live to be in their, their 90s. Someone from my son's generation could live well to be over 100. So when you make a mistake in life, uh, when you mistreat someone, uh, when you lie to someone, you deceive someone, you bully someone, um, you have to eventually live with that. At the time, it means nothing to you. But as you start to get older and you look back on your life and you've done something or you've hurt somebody, that comes back to haunt you a great deal. And you have to live with that for many, many years. So I always tell people before you do something, before you act, before you mistreat someone, mislead someone, bully someone, 
Uh, ask yourself if you really want to have that burden and carry that burden for the rest of your life, because you will as you get older. You don't think so now, but you will. And again, life is long, so you have to live with that burden for a long, long time. Abignell spoke in Tulsa and Oklahoma City as part of the Executive Management Briefing Series sponsored by the Spears School of Business here at Oklahoma State. The series is a great opportunity to hear from top business leaders and experts. The speakers for the 2019-2020 school year will be announced sometime over the next few months. You can follow the Spears School of Business on Facebook for details. And that's this week's podcast. I'm Burns Hargis, and we'll be back next week with another Inside OSU podcast. Make sure you hit the subscribe and share buttons. We appreciate your support, and we thank you for listening.